We had that passage of scripture read as a just a part of our message. I'm going to refer to that. We'll not be looking at that in John 13. I'll be referring to it. We are continuing our studies through the Gospel of Matthew, and I invite you to turn in your Bible or look on with somebody in chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, as we continue to uh, study through this fascinating book, and especially this chapter that we are in, the 18th chapter, Matthew chapter 18. God created man as a, as a social creature. Uh, man has a, has a built-in need to interact with other human beings at, at some level. We're, we're wired that way. That's evident in the first two chapters of Genesis where we read about the creation of man. There was a gap of time between the creation of Adam and the creation of Eve. And probably that was, a, was probably a very short period of time. But during that brief lapse... God makes the statement, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, that has all kinds of implications for marriage. I'm applying them in general to the human race. And so God created woman, and that's wonderful. And Adam was pleased, and he was now able to relate to another human being. He needed that, and she needed that. Interaction with another human being, we are, we are just created for that. However... The entrance of sin into the human race brought a huge challenge to the whole area of human beings relating to each other. Becoming a Christian does not end that challenge. We are members of the body of Christ as born-again believers. And as individual members of the same body, we need each other whether we admit it or not. But as members of, of Christ's church, we face challenges when it comes to relating to each other. And this is illustrated in Christ's 12 disciples. They didn't always do a good job of getting along well with each other. And, for example, they argued about who was the greatest. And there was envy and there was jealousy between those apostles. And it is against that backdrop that we have Matthew chapter 18 in which Jesus talked about his children relating to one another. And that's exactly what he calls us, his children, a child. And he began on the ground floor by emphasizing that if you constantly have trouble getting along with fellow believers, you, you need to back up and make sure that you are even in the family. Once we have cleared that, we need to make sure we are receiving one another. We all have a long ways to go, and we need to make sure we're caring for one another and building up one another. The opposite of that is rejecting and resisting certain ones, causing one another to stumble. That is a very serious thing. Because each believer is precious to our Heavenly Father. One of the greatest tests in this area comes when we have been sinned against by another fellow believer. That does happen, in case you haven't noticed. And if you haven't noticed, just hang around. It, it does happen. And when it does, we are responsible to be about the business of restoring one another. 
And so Jesus very carefully laid out the steps for doing that as we studied. And so far in chapter 18, we've talked about joining one another, receiving one another, restoring one another. And now, if we are going to effectively restore one another, there's something else which becomes a necessity, and that is that we must be faithful in forgiving one another. Without that forgiveness, without that forgiveness, reconciliation breaks down and the whole growth process will stall out. And restoration will not be completed. And so guess what the next subject is in this subject on relating to one another? Guess. Right. Forgiving one another. And uh, I'll tell you, this is, this is right where we live, folks. It's a natural follow-up of what Jesus has just taught. The subject is actually introduced by Peter. He introduces the subject as he often does. It's Peter's proposal for forgiveness, and it's in verse 21, Matthew 18, verse 21. That's where we left off. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, good old Peter. Forever stating opinions or asking questions. Many of the, it struck me as I looked at this, many of the great truths Jesus taught were precipitated by Peter either stating an opinion or asking a question or making a comment. And here he asks a question. This is a very logical question at this point. If, you, if you'll back up to verse 16, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, and then Jesus talked about restoring in verses 15 through 20. And now Peter, he picks up on one little part of that, and he says in verse 21, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And so this is a very logical question at this point. Jesus has just dealt with the issue of restoring a sinning believer, but what if that sinning believer goes right out and does it again and again and again? Is there a limit to forgiveness? You know, there are many people who think so. They think so. And they hesitate to forgive because they think it might make it easier for the person to go out and do it again. And so they refuse to forgive until the person comes crawling on his knees for a quarter mile and really make him sweat to see if he really means it. Or they openly refuse to forgive altogether. That's very common. That is very common. And the burning question here is simple. Is there a limit to forgiveness? More than once I have heard a person say, I'll never forgive so and so because of what she or he did to me. Maybe you've said that yourself. Maybe you're in a situation like that right now. And you refuse to forgive because what a certain person did to you. In your thinking, there's a limit to forgiveness. And somebody did something in the past, maybe rate it right, and that person has perhaps grown past that, but in your mind, it is a permanent blemish, and you will never forgive that person. You refuse to accept and receive that fellow believer. 
when Peter said up to seven times, he was sure. He was suggesting something very magnanimous in that, and that Jesus would congratulate him. Because you see, Jewish tradition said, forgive a person three times for the same thing and that's it. Rabbis taught this. They did. Rabbi Ben Jehuda, you know him, don't you? He said this, quote, if a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense twice, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. But the fourth time, they do not forgive him. Rabbi Ben Hanina said, quote, he who begs forgiveness from his neighbor must do so no more than three times. And so Peter thought he was being generous when he proposed seven times. You see, forgiveness is not natural for a human being. King Louis Twelfth of France echoed what many people feel when he said, nothing smelled so sweet as the dead body of your enemy. Or the bumper sticker that you're familiar with. I don't get mad, I just get even. Revenge? Yes. Forgiveness? No. Forgiveness is foreign to our nature. And so when Jesus on the cross said of his enemies, Father, forgive them. And when Stephen said the same thing of those who stoned him, that just does not fit human nature. And that's kind of what's behind Peter's question here. And Jesus' reply had to be a surprise. I'm calling it Jesus' pronouncement on forgiveness, and it's in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I think this startled Peter. 490 times? Who could ever keep that kind of a record? And that's just a point. Legalistic law keeps count, and that's how Peter was thinking, that there's a limit. Grace does not keep count. Love keeps no record of wrongs suffered, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Some of you have a little record book. You have a little record book. And you on a regular basis review somebody who wronged you or somebody who wronged somebody else, somebody who did something that you thought was bad and you have a little record book and you have never forgiven that person. Jesus was not saying you should keep a record. You know, like, finally, that's 490 times. This is your last chance. After this, it's the axe. No. Jesus was saying forgiveness sets no limits. Forgiveness should be a constant attitude. There should be a constant absence of holding grudges and resentments and having desires for revenge. There should be an absence of that. In order to really accept and appreciate this, it might help to just turn the tables for a moment. How many times do you want to be forgiven by God? Just three? Just seven? Or just 490? We are to have a Christ-like spirit of forgiveness. There's never a place for vengeful resentment. 
holding lasting grudges is never in place. No, we are to dismiss, release, let go, no longer attach that sin to that person. No longer view that person as being attached to that sin. That's how Christ forgave you. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Forgiving one another. Even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. Colossians 3.13. If anyone has a grudge against another, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. That's how we are to forgive. I know people who no longer have ministry in the body and to whom the body is not able to minister because they refuse to forgive as Christ forgave us. That's tragic. Now, now before we go on in our text, it's important for us to stop and talk for just a moment about two aspects of forgiveness. And here's where the text from John 13 comes in. We're not going to turn to it. Let me just point it out to you. There is, first of all, what I'm going to call relationship forgiveness. Relationship forgiveness. It has to do with our eternal salvation. And, and this happened because of the cross where Christ gives His child complete, total forgiveness forever. And all of our sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood, gone forever. Relationship forgiveness. Praise God for that. Amen? Amen. And then there's another aspect of forgiveness, and I'm going to call this communion forgiveness or fellowship forgiveness. And it has to do with our daily walk and our communion with our Heavenly Father. Like a parent-child relationship. When there is unconfessed sin in your life as a believer, that sweet communion with your Father, it grows cold. And one of the traits of a true believer is that it keeps short accounts with His Heavenly Father. Again, that parent-father-child relationship. And so that the fellowship can remain vital and vibrant and meaningful. And that's the daily cleansing that Jesus was talking about in John 13. And I wish we could go back into that passage and, and bring that out a little further, but it's an illustration of what we're talking about here where, where you don't have to be saved again and again and again. You don't have to be born again and again and again. But as a believer, as a child of God, you have to deal with sin so that your communion with your Heavenly Father can be sweet and vital and alive and helpful. And so you have relationship forgiveness and you have fellowship forgiveness. That daily cleansing. And that's where the use of 1 John 1, 9 comes into play. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now that's our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And there are similarities between that and our relationship with one another. And so when we wrong one another, our, our fellowship grows cold. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You see it in your marriage. You'll see it in your parent-child relationships. You'll see it in your relationships with other believers. That when, when we wrong each other, our fellowship grows cold and it becomes strained. And so forgiveness must be sought from one another. It must be asked for, and then it must be granted if that fellowship is going to be restored. Both of those need to be there. It needs to be sought, and then it needs to be granted, and then that reconciliation can take place. But, 
We must never harbor grudges. Instead, we must have a continual spirit of forgiveness which knows no bounds. And that's Christ's pronouncement. And it is, it is so foreign to us. And even as I say that, even as you read what Jesus says here, some of you are thinking and you want to say it out loud, but you're being nice and you're saying, but you don't know my situation. And this is so foreign to us that Jesus spends the rest of the chapter giving an illustration. I'm calling it Jesus' parable about forgiveness. And I want to read it. I want to read the whole thing, beginning in verse 23. Follow as I read this parable now, and we'll look at just a part of it this morning. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should pay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. That's powerful, isn't it? That is a powerful parable. In fact, it's so powerful and has so much, we're not going to be able to cover it all today. It's like a three-act play. It's like a three-act play. We're just going to do part of it. Act one is this. Forgiveness illustrated. Back up to verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. For this reason, and some of your Bibles begin that verse with the word therefore, same thing. And that word, for this reason, therefore, that, that immediately links the parable with the previous verses on forgiving a brother. And that's very important to understand so we don't go in all kinds of directions with our interpretation. And that tells us that the preceding context is the key to the interpretation of the parable. You see, to understand a parable, you have to interpret various parts. It's, it's that simple. And we have to interpret them properly in light of the context. 
And we're going to interpret as we go through it. The king, in verse 23, is none other than God. How do we know that? We'll look at verse 35 again. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And so the king is none other than God, our heavenly Father. The slave and the slaves is referring to us, members of the human race, and more specifically, God's children. God holds us accountable. And this king decided it was time to bring in his slaves so they could give an account for what they owed him. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's gracious that he didn't do it much sooner and that he even gave them opportunity. That alone was gracious. Look at verse 24. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And so this one individual is singled out now And this one individual owed 10,000 talents. How much is that? Well, if you'll read commentators, you're going to find all kinds of answers to that. The estimates, they're going to vary greatly. And I found all the way from from 2 million to 2 billion. That's, That's quite a wide variation. Actually, it's impossible to make an accurate assessment because monetary values change so much during the course of history. John Phillips in his commentary says this, a talent was the heaviest unit used by the Hebrews and the the number 10,000 was the highest round number. So it's the ultimate. And so from the history of that day, we learn that this was a huge, unlimited amount of money. For for example, the total tax that Rome collected... annually from Edomia or Edom that they collected from Edom and Judea and Samaria and Galilee the annual tax was only 900 talents so what this one man owed was equal to 11 years of taxes from those four provinces in the economy of that day one man would have had to work for 20 years to earn just one talent This man owed 10,000 talents. And so the whole point here is that this man, because of embezzlement or whatever reason it is, this reason isn't stated, but for whatever reason, he owed an astronomical, uncountable, unpayable amount. And so you can understand why it says he was brought. He didn't want to come. He knew he was in big trouble. Now, folks, That illustrates us and the debt we owe to God. That's a picture of you and me. And it's not merely because of how many sins we commit. It's because of the sinfulness of sin before a holy God. And the result of that is that that each of us is hopelessly in debt before God. And I, I don't believe this is referring to the final judgment here. Because... This man had opportunity to be forgiven and to get forgiveness. At the final judgment, that won't be an option. So I don't think this is talking about the final judgment. This is talking about a simple description of our utter bankruptcy before God and the fact that it's impossible for us to pay what we owe. Now here's a key statement I want you to keep in mind. Perhaps the greatest motive 
for being forgiving is to realize how much we have been forgiven. Perhaps the greatest motive for being forgiving towards someone who has wronged us is to remember and reflect on how much we have been forgiven. And that's illustrated right here in this parable. How much we've been forgiven. Look at verse 25. But since he, the slave, who owed 10,000 talents, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. That's probably a just payment. Among pagans, it was common that if you could not pay a debt, then you and yours all became slaves of the creditor. And so again, don't read into this necessarily. This is king is some kind of a tyrant. In some ways, he is being just and merciful. Until now, he had not required payment. Until now, he had allowed the slave to get by. But here's the interesting thing. What the king is asking here will not begin to repay all that the slave owes. Again, it is an impossible debt. And that's exactly how we are before God. Even spending eternity in hell will not repay the debt we owe for our sin. Folks, this is a terrible picture. After 20 billion years in hell, you still can't get enough to get out because hell is forever. It's not going to be enough. This slave knows he's in big trouble and he's overwhelmed by his debt. So look what he does now in verse 26. And so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now in one sense, his attitude is right. It's admirable. But he's not right in thinking that he can repay it. He was not right in thinking that he could pay it back. He doesn't really know what he's saying. Now, it's not unusual for a person under conviction of sin to, to do something like this and to just kind of determine to, to try harder. I'm going gonna, gonna to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to get religious. I'm going to make a vow. I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to try to make myself worthy. I'm going to try harder to sin less, especially those worst vices, whatever they might be in the mind of that person. That's very common. That's very common. This slave knows that he is in debt big time. He even wants to take care of it, but he really has the wrong idea about what it will take. He lacks full understanding of what it will take. And the interesting thing is that the king does not even respond to the offer, nor does the king chide the slave because of that pathetic offer. Instead, notice what he does in verse 27. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Except for one factor, this case was hopeless. One factor. That one factor the compassion of the king. 
the slave asked for patience so he could try to make things right. Instead, the king forgave the entire debt. The slave sincerely wanted forgiveness. He sincerely wanted to have it made right. But he couldn't do it. And the king completely forgave the entire debt. What a verse on grace. Amazing grace. I wrote it in my margin. Write it in your Bible. Amazing grace. He released him. The king turned him loose from his debt. He released him from a very painful situation. He dismissed him from his debt. That is absolutely amazing. Because this means that the slave would be free and his family would not be sold into slavery. No way did the slave deserve that forgiveness. It was purely an act of love and mercy and grace. That is a striking picture of God's love and undeserving forgiveness that He offers to the repentant sinner. And so the king absorbed the loss and He forgave the undeserving sinner. Jesus Christ paid the price, absorbed the loss, So you could be forgiven. Compassion is a key word here in this passage. Deeply moved by a powerful inner love and concern. And that's how a holy God views all of us. Compassion. In spite of our sin, His love does not change. The crime was against Him. We sinned against Him. He was violated. Our sin against Him was far beyond anything we can ever imagine. Far beyond anything we can ever repay. And again, repeat, it's not the number of sins you've committed. It's not about the kind of sins you've committed. It's all about the sinfulness of sin against a holy God. That's the issue. And it's true of every one of us. We have a debt that we can never repay. We are hopelessly in debt. Nothing you can do will ever begin to settle the account or make you debt free. Oh, you can get religious. And you can jump through all the religious hoops. And you can go to church for a whole year without skipping one Sunday. And you can say ten nice things every day about some person who's nasty to you. Or you can give 90% of your income Or you can get baptized and sermonized and catechized. Or you can get galvanized and sanitized and synthesized and sanferized. But your debt will not be paid. And so you ask, what can I do? Turn to God in utter brokenness over your sin. Cry out for mercy through Jesus Christ and He will forgive you totally and forever. Now please do not misunderstand. This does not mean that God overlooks your sin. The penalty has to be paid You can't pay it. But Christ paid the penalty for you. And He he absorbed the loss on His account 
through Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be in this situation where you continually wonder if, you, if you're good enough or if you've done enough. I'll tell you right now on the authority of God's Word, you aren't good enough and you haven't done enough. But Jesus Christ is good enough and then some. He's perfect. And He did more than enough. Trust what He did on the cross for you. And you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Who says so? Good question. God says so. Isaiah 1.18 Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our sins from us. Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Micah 7, 19, God says, He buries our sins in the depths of the deepest sea. And Ephesians 1, verse 7, look at it. It's right in your notes, right at the bottom of the back page. In whom we have redemption through His blood. There's the paid penalty. Even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. It is undeserved. What forgiveness. What a motive for being forgiving. But that's for next time. That sets the stage for being forgiving. Oh, friend, do you realize that you cannot repay the debt that you owe? Have you fully trusted Christ alone for forgiveness? If you've never done that, we invite you to do that. May God give you the grace to do that. To trust Christ alone for full and free forgiveness. Jesus paid the price. He paid it all. And if you're a child of God, you should be ready at this, at this point to shout, Hallelujah! Hallelujah. Amen. Amen! If you're not, I, send, I, hope you, I pray that you sense a need in your own heart to be set free from this, this debt that you cannot hope to ever repay. And recognize that Christ paid that debt. But you must trust Him and Him alone. Nothing else will do. I think we should sing a song. Dave, come lead us, will you please? Let's sing this song together and then we'll have closing prayer.
Lord, now, indeed, I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Then on three, for nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Let's sing that final verse. And when before the throne I stand in incomplete, Jesus, I my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus made it provision God has given to us. If you have a question about this, if you're not sure where you are in your relationship to God, and you want to know that your sins are forgiven, you want to talk to somebody, we'll be up here afterwards, talk to one of the elders, talk to myself, because from God's word we know that we can know that we've been born again, we're God's children. Let's just bow together in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for your provision. As is illustrated in this parable, Father, we thank you for forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that perfect, complete, eternal forgiveness. And yet, Father, as your children, we continually need to come before you and acknowledge our sinfulness and, and just be restored to the place so that our walk with you is alive and real and vital. And Lord, teach us to be rejoicing in the forgiveness we have in Christ and to grant forgiveness to those that are around us. Father, we all have so far to go in our walk with you. We thank you for your patience for us. We thank you for your love to us that does not change. And may we rejoice in that. And we pray for the one who may be here, who does not have that assurance that they belong to you. Lord, we just pray that by your spirit you will grant them no rest, till by your grace they rest by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thank you for your enabling grace. And Lord, may we rejoice in the greatness of our salvation and our Savior, who indeed paid it all. And now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus our Lord. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen.